Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So before we uh, get to the main topic for today, um, I had phoned in to um, uh, Chuck Thorne's uh, Playing It Wrong podcast, um, and I made like a comment about frustrated writers. And uh, when I heard it back on the podcast, I kind of thought, that's actually a little bit insulting, because I'm also a frustrated writer in that, you know, I've been... I've been uh, writing fiction longer than I've been gaming, actually, and I've never successfully published anything. Um, what I what I was actually trying to um, say in the comment was that if your only outlet for your story and fiction ideas is the gaming table, I think you might be more likely to try to force the game to take on your plot try to force the game into your plot and try to force your players to play the kind of characters that you want in your story um and if if you whether it's published or not if you take that into fiction then you don't have to um, put your your writing goals in your gaming goals i would have thought based on you know being an aspiring author that I would have a much more story-driven game. Um, And it turns out that I don't actually prefer a story-driven game. I prefer the driving force of the game to be the crazy stuff the players do. Um, And this whole topic got got me thinking about um, a question that somebody posted to, or posed to Matt Colville. Um, If you don't... uh, subscribe to Matt Colville's uh, YouTube channel you should um I've been uh, I've been following his YouTube channel for a long time it's uh it's one of the best sort of D&D orientated channels that uh that I've uh, that I've discovered and uh he's actually friends with uh several of the cast members of Critical Role and somebody asked him if he had a a character like Pumat Soul in his game and if you don't, if you don't watch Critical Role, um, first of all, if you don't watch Critical Role, keep not watching Critical Role. Don't jump on that bandwagon if you're not already on it. Um, but if you if you don't watch Critical Role, you won't know who Pumat Soul is. So Pumat Soul is a um, a Canadian hoser furbolg, and if you don't know what those things are, then you are so lucky. Um, but he's a Canadian hoser furbolg magic user with three simulacra who runs a magic shop in Matt Mercer's game world. And it's one of these things where you can go in there and buy any magic item in the world. You just need the money. Uh, which, you know, <clears throat> I know people think that's cool. I would never put that in my game. I don't want magic to be like an iPhone, you know. Like, anybody can have an iPhone as long as they can afford it. And that being the case, if you want magic items, the prudent thing to do would be get a job in the game, save up your money, and buy the magic. You know? But nobody wants to play Medieval Blacksmith Simulator. You know? So making magic something that you actually have to go adventuring to get, you know, (laughs) removes that whole dynamic. But anyways, that's Matt Mercer's game. And, you know, millions and millions of, of, uh, critical role fans, you know, are, are into it. But anyways, they asked, they asked, uh, Matt Colville, whether he had a really highly developed NPC like Pumat soul. And he said, you know, I, I write and publish my own independent fantasy fiction. And that's where I put my, you know, characters. If I have a, a really good character or a really good story, I put it in my fiction. I don't bring it to the gaming table and I take pretty much the same approach when I'm thinking about a game I want to run. I'm not thinking about the way I want it to go. I don't want to like do some ham it up NPC acting. 
I'm happy to give an NPC personality for the duration that people are interacting with it, especially if it'll give people a little laugh or maybe give them some clues as to what their goals and motivations are. But it's not like the purpose of running D&D for me anyway isn't to show off how many voices I can do or what a great actor I am. It's to to give the players a good time. And I don't think they're having a good time if I'm hogging the stage. So that was kind of, those are the sort of things that I was thinking about with the frustrated writer's comment is that, you know, if, if your only outlet for your creativity as a, as a writer, either aspiring or professional, if your only outlet were your D and D game or your RPG game, then you would probably feel, you're probably more likely to feel compelled to force those stories on your players because you can't get them out any other way. But if you have another outlet, then you can leave it there and and keep the gaming table as an open place where everybody contributes and where the player's decisions are the driving force of the game. So anyways, yeah, that was that was what I was trying to get at with the frustrated writer thing. Um, Certainly didn't want to like belittle people who are frustrated writers because I'm one myself. I'm just not a frustrated DM or frustrated writer DM. So on to the uh, main topic of the day. Um, My last podcast, I talked about race as class and I got some call-ins about that. I had a feeling it would uh, generate some interest. So first up, let's hear from Colin Green at Spike Pit. Hi, Robert. Incoming message from Spike Pit. Yeah, it's me. Um, Just congratulations on your last episode. Demi-humans, racist class, yeah, big fan of it, mate. I think it really captures my idea of what what D&D is. Um, It's how I played as a kid. I guess now I'm I'm not such a hardcore D&D fan as I was back in the day. It was the only thing. But... um, I like the fact that it captures that kind of Tolkien feel of what demi-humans are. It it reigns in the min-maxers, and I, I, I've I've got a bit of that in Five E, min-maxing. You know, um, in particular, half this and half that. You know, half elves is one of my pet peeves, really. Anyway, great episode. Take it easy. Thanks for that, Colin, uh, and thanks for phoning in as always. And um, our second Colin uh, comes from Tim Shorts of Gothridge Manor. Hey, Robert, this is Tim Shorts from Gothridge Manor. Just got done listening to your racist class. I I am a big fan of BX Essentials. Uh, yeah, get it. If you have a chance, yeah, it's definitely worthwhile. Gavin Norman really did a great job in his presentation of the the rules and everything as far as race is class uh i go back and forth um right now i seem to be fine with it i know when i first started playing i didn't like it it felt too generic for me i guess i'll make up a word um i didn't think I, it's kind of when when they do it like that sometimes it reminds me of the old science fiction places where you know like like the Klingons are all just these war tribes and there's not really much of a mix you know um I'm gonna have to do a part two (laughs) so talking too much part two there um the way I like to do it now this being said I am running a BX campaign right now and I'm using elf as a class dwarf as a class so I'm not going you know differing from that but Sometimes what I'll do is I will develop classes based on culture, not so much race. Because if you look with elven societies, depending on, you know, of course, your campaign world, elven societies can look very different from one another despite being the same race, you know, just like human. So I like going in, taking that extra step and developing the classes based on the culture that folks are coming from, whether they're elves, dwarves, humans, whatever. Because I think that's, for me, that's what I enjoy doing is exploring that. So I hope that made sense. Enjoyed the podcast and definitely get BX Essentials well worth it. 
All right, and thank you uh, for calling in, Tim. Now, um, I think Tim does a great job of pointing out the drawback of uh, of using race as class, and it isn't, you know, the the power of the characters. You know, I, I think a, a lot of kind of min maxi characters would see not being able to combine elf with an with a character class or dwarf with a character class as limiting their power but i think the the drawback for somebody like me is that yeah if elf is a class then you're kind of implying that all elves are the same that's this the sci-fi ish uh view of other of non-humans that you uh that you get that that tim pointed out you know it's almost like codifying the kind of humans, like, oh, you elves all look the same to me kind of a thing. Um, and of course, yeah, like he says, you could you could make culture-based classes, but then you're going to have to homebrew quite a lot. So if, you're will- if you really want to focus it, if you want to open up all these different uh, non-human or demi-human races as playable races, but make them seem distinctive from each other as well as from humans and you're willing to put that that effort in and and homebrew a series of class options that are only available to the demi-humans and that's really cool um it's a lot of work though however um if you listen to uh i don't know if it's still his latest episode but it's one of his most recent episodes tim talks about he he goes into that a bit more in in more detail and he mentions Adventures in Middle Earth, which does create different cultural class-based options, um, obviously because it's trying to uh, emulate the world of Tolkien and how elves and dwarves and hobbits and humans, or men as they're called in Tolkien, um, really are distinct from each other and they feel distinct from each other. And it's funny because you know Colin Green mentioned the Tolkien-esque view as well as something that he he thought racist class kind of evokes. But I thought it was interesting that basically both both Colin and Tim have have mentioned Tolkien while discussing this and that Tim has specifically mentioned adventures in Middle Earth. Uh, I don't know if this is still on right now, um, but there's a humble bundle where Basically, for 15 US dollars, and I think it worked at about 11 pounds, 11 British pounds, so far less than you can buy most PDFs, let alone physical books, you can get PDFs of absolutely everything for Cubicle 7's The One Ring role-playing game. Uh, As far as I know, Cubicle 7 are the only publishing company which is licensed by the Tolkien estate to use basically all of their material to create a role-playing game product. And for a long time, the one ring was their only game. Um, I believe, I believe they first published it while fourth edition was still the, um, the current version of Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I'm sure I was looking and I did actually find a system reference document that had fourth edition rules in it. Um, so maybe they did eventually open up the open gaming license to include fourth edition, but initially it's pretty famous that initially wizards of the coast did not um, open fourth edition up for the open gaming license, which was one of two things. Well, it's, it's one of the things that, caused Paizo to need to create Pathfinder in the first place. Um, so basically jerking their license to produce Dragon Magazine caused them to continue publishing the magazine under a different name and then not opening the new edition, not including the newest edition of the game under the open gaming license, therefore preventing third-party publishers for from producing content for fourth edition, forced Paizo to basically retro clone 3.5 and um and and basically invent the pathfinder role playing game um in the end it probably became a moot point because fourth edition was so wildly unpopular uh that it i mean i, I didn't even realize that that wizards of the coast may have eventually 
released a system reference document for fourth edition. I was actually looking to see if you could still get a hand, get my hands on the 3.0 and 3.5 system reference documents um, for publishing purposes. And I discovered a, a 4.0 version. Um, and I had no idea that such a thing even existed. But anyways, during the, during the fourth edition era, either you couldn't legally use D and D mechanics for your game, or it would have been unadvisable to do so because nobody wanted to play fourth edition in the first place. That may not be the only reason that Cubicle 7 created a unique system for their role-playing game, for their Tolkien role-playing game, but I'm sure it was part of part of the discussion. It's like, well, look, we can't we can't actually make it compatible with D&D anyway, and even if we could, current D&D is not something people are interested in playing. I don't see how 4th edition would fit into a Tolkien-esque world anyway. So the One Ring has its own unique uh, rule set and mechanics. However, when Fifth Edition came out, and Fifth Edition right away was uh, was made, you know, available through the Open Gaming License, they clearly set to work on. Well, when I first heard about it, I guess like I allowed myself to believe it was Fifth Edition Dungeons and Dragons in Middle Earth. It isn't. It is compatible with fifth edition mechanics to a certain extent. But what they have basically done is they have taken the one ring and they have made the character classes um, work in a similar way and in a more or less compatible way to fifth edition, but it is not Dungeons and Dragons. In fact, a lot of the rules in the game prevent you from playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I'll talk about what I mean later. Um, so anyways, yeah, I jumped on that one ring thing, that humble bundle. Um, I don't know if I ever really want to run the one ring. Actually, I quite like that system. Um, I, there used to be a series of videos on YouTube with James Spawn running it over like rule 20 or Skype or something like that. Um, we all know James Spawn is a huge Tolkien fan and he did a fantastic job as what they call it the lore master absolutely phenomenal game everybody was so dialed in everybody played the game with you know it, it really felt tolkien-esque and everybody was having a great time and they demoed a lot of how the system works and i thought this is a good this is a good game this is a good role-playing system um I can't find that video on YouTube anymore. Uh, I don't know if it's been taken down or something like that, um, which is a shame because I think it was it was really entertaining to watch. If you're into watching people play, you know, play role playing games online, um, I think that's definitely worth checking out. Um, and that was also how I first heard of James Bond. So later, when he, you know, I, I rediscovered James Bond as like the white box guy who did all those amazing white box supplements and you know the hero's journey and now untold adventures and stuff like that. It's like, hey, that was the lore master from that One Ring show I was watching. But anyways, the reason I wanted to talk about the um, the One Ring and Adventures in Middle Earth today was. I have been reading The Hobbit to my five-year-old, and he is—he's really loving it. And they, my kids, have decided that they want to play this game. We probably are going to use Adventures in Middle Earth um, rather than The One Ring, and even that, I'm going to be tweaking it quite a bit. But they want to play Hobbits, and an interesting thing about both. The One Ring and Adventures in Middle Earth is they're set up for you not to play Hobbits. I would almost go so far as to say it's anti-Hobbit. It like automatically assumes that you're not going to play a Hobbit. You wouldn't want to play a Hobbit. So the first thing is the game defaults to you starting in Lake Town. Um... And I mean, you, you know, you can roll up a hobbit. There are rules for that, but it it assumes that your starting place is in Lake Town 
or possibly Dale or Erebor. Um, but but all the all the starting adventures and stuff and all the all the information in the first two core rule books are are specifically about Eskaroth up to the Lonely Mountain and you know and Mirkwood and stuff like that. Those that that sort of area. And you have to think, right? If you were playing a hobbit and you started in Lake Town along with everybody else, that means that you journeyed from the Shire to Lake Town. Well, we know what a journey from the Shire to Lake Town looks like. Look at all the things that happened to Bilbo when he went from the Shire to Lake Town, you know. So it is completely unthinkable that a hobbit in Lake Town would have had no adventures along the way. I mean, that that's absurd, especially the game assumes that you're going to go from Lake Town further west, making your way towards the Misty Mountains and having to cope with Mirkwood on the way. And loads of things are going to happen to you, loads of adventures. So why would they not have happened on the way to Lake Town? So it is really like making it difficult for you to be a hobbit. It's not it's not making making this an easy choice. And, you know, at the end of the day, a hobbit, a hobbit's journey is going to start in the Shire. And the game even seems to make it difficult for you to get to the Shire and f- choose it as a, as a home base or a sanctuary. Um, they have, the game has these things called sanctuaries, so it's places where you can rest. So, like, Rivendell can be a sanctuary if you make friends with Elrond. Bayorn's house can be a sanctuary if you make friends with Bayorn. Radagast's house at Roscobel can be a sanctuary if you make friends with if with Ros, or with Radagast. The Lonely Mountain can be a sanctuary if you're already a dwarf or if you make friends with uh, Thrain. Dale can be a sanctuary if you make friends with King Bard, you know. Can the Shire be a sanctuary? Well, it says here... Very little happens in the Shire. Outsiders are not welcome, and any of the big folk who do make their way there are always treated with suspicion. Adventurers are certainly not knowingly tolerated within its borders. So that's out. Now, granted, that is keeping with, uh, you know, Tolkien's description of the Shire. We certainly never see any big folk in the Shire. But, you know, yeah, it is kind of putting the kibosh on on playing a, a Hobbit. So when I run this game, because my kids both want to play Hobbits, I'm having to go to some of the supplementary material that describes the area, that describes a Riador. And I'm going to have to completely eschew, for now at least, all of the typical starting material and invent adventures for a couple of hobbits who they're friends with Bilbo. They've heard his stories. And unlike a lot of hobbits who are like, oh, that's absurd. Or why would you do those, go on those crazy adventures? They're kind of like, ooh, I'd like to have some adventures too. And they're going to, you know, leave the Shire and go look around and see what they can find. However, this doesn't bother me because... I'm usually pretty happy to homebrew things. I'm actually thinking that to start with, I'd like to give them a little Shire adventure, which it won't be very scary at all. It will just involve um, some of the not very nice people in the Shire, like, you know, Ted Sandyman or the Sackville Bagginses and have, have them kind of have some little small scale falling out with some of the less pleasant hobbits. That maybe provokes them to go on a journey. We'll see how that goes. And then they can go to Bree. I mean, there there's descriptions of the Barrow Downs. They can do some of those things that uh, that can happen in between the Shire and Bree. I'm kind of hoping they'll go north up the Greenway because I have the uh, Ruins of the North supplement. And I've always wanted to know more about Fornost and the ruins of the Northern Kingdom and the ruins of Angmar. Although those could be some pretty scary adventures if there's anything still lurking in the ruins of Angmar. And if not, maybe they'll just go, you know, go east, have some adventures in the Misty Mountains. And, you know, wherever they go, uh, we'll find the information I need and figure out something for them to do. So I'm, I'm happy to homebrew my own campaign that starts with a couple of hobbits in the Shire.
Um, some other reasons I might need to be uh, tweaking this system in this game is because there are some mechanics that I think are not going to gel with the kind of play style that we normally enjoy. And this is kind of what I mean by playing adventures in Middle-earth is not playing D&D at all. And it is it is kind of set up to stop you playing D&D. So first of all, Adventures in Middle-earth, and indeed the One Ring before it, puts the focus in exactly the places that D&D tends to overlook. So there are some long rules about journeys, and there are long rules about there's a there's a a whole phase of the game called the fellowship phase, which is comparable to an extended downtime session, except it's completely driven by the player characters. They they will be made aware of some things that they can do during their downtime, um, and and they will tell you the lore master what they're doing, and you will just kind of facilitate that. If you think about <clears throat> a uh, traditional game of dungeons and dragons you know either either the dungeon site is not that far away like i don't think the the ruins of greyhawk were that far from the town of greyhawk or if it is that far away then you know the dm will just say well after traveling for a few weeks nothing happens and you get there or the or you can teleport that's a pretty modern thing i think they the a lot of the uh, official Wizards of the Coast modules are always having you teleport great distances so that you can still start in the flipping Sword Coast, because everything has to start in the Sword Coast, and then you can go really far away by just stepping into a teleportation circle. There's no teleportation circles in Middle-Earth. You have to walk there. So they focus on the journey. And there's rules for things happening on the journey. And basically the adventure is the journey. And the place you're going to is probably a sanctuary where you'll spend your fellowship phase. And for example, in the James Bond game that I saw on the internet, they started in Lake Town. They were taking some supplies to one of the towns that the woodmen live in. So somewhere between the banks of the Anduin and the eaves of, of, of uh, Mirkwood. So they had lots of adventures in Mirkwood, and when they arrived at the town, it was being attacked by orcs, and they joined in that that fight and helped drive the orcs off. But once the orcs, once the orc army was driven off, the town was safe, and they were able to open it as a sanctuary because they'd helped defend it from orcs, and they spent a fellowship phase there. So it's not like journeying to a dungeon. I guess you could do that. Let's say you're going on an expedition to the Barrow Downs. That's kind of like a dungeon crawl. But it really focused on the journey rather than the destination. And then the destination was extended downtime. So instead of trying to get through the downtime as quickly as possible, just doing a bit of bookkeeping, buying some new equipment, so ticking off your gold and adding a few things to your um, your equipment list or something like that, you know, it was it was a, a long extended role playing session because even though there there are mechanical things you accomplish during the fellowship phase, you do kind of role play them as well. So you don't just get a patron say, okay, I find I have this patron now. You have to kind of talk with them in character and see if you can actually earn them as a patron. And so. One of the things that's really cool about both the One Ring and Adventures in Middle-Earth is that it does put its focus in exactly the opposite places that D&D traditionally would put its focus. And if you could kind of combine those two approaches, you would have a game that can have a lot happening at every single stage, if you wanted that. I mean, not everybody wants to spend one or two sessions um, doing extended downtime. And if people are anxious to get to a certain adventure site, they may not want to spend, you know, five or six sessions having uh, random encounters along the way. But you could do that. And I actually think that is pretty cool. 
it makes it 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 makes it distinct from Dungeons and Dragons, and it is very Tolkien Tolkien esque. Because if you think about the Hobbit, and especially Fellowship of the Ring, they start in a safe place, they leave it, lots of bad stuff happens, then they reach a safe place and they rest there for a bit, and then they leave that and bad stuff happens, and then they reach another safe place and they rest there for a bit, and then they leave that and bad stuff happens, and you know, so it does give you that kind of dangerous adventurous journey punctuated by rest and relative safety um so i that is that is a really cool difference from dungeons and dragons but there are some things that i'm not so sure about although they are certainly tolkien-esque um so one thing is the the conceit of both these games is that it takes place in between the hobbit and the start of lord of the rings which is about 50 years of time that they can fill. So there's a lot of time to uh, to explore and have adventures that won't necessarily have an impact on, uh, on canonical events. But because it is basically, I mean, you know, the, the clues in the name, the One Ring, it is more thematically linked to the Lord of the Rings than the Hobbit. You know, in the Hobbit, if you consider it in isolation, you have no indication that there's some kind of epic struggle between good and evil that's about to be fought. And, uh, you know, I remember first reading The Hobbit. There were loads of times where I thought, I don't see how Bilbo and the dwarves are going to get out of this one. And it would have been really sad if one of them had died. And it was sad when, like, Thorin died and things. But, you know, it wasn't it, it wasn't the end of the world, it's like, oh, it would be sad if they don't get their treasure back and if people die. But, you know, it would be sad for them and not so much for anybody else. Whereas when I, when I remember reading Lord of the Rings years before the films came out, so I had no idea what was going to happen. And when I realized what the ring really was and what they had to do with it, you know, and, they, and I looked up in the map in the back of the book and saw that they have to basically march into Sauron's country and go to this big mountain that's right next to Barad-dûr, and it's like, how are they going to do this? This is impossible. And if they fail, it literally, it literally is the end of the world. And I got really anxious reading that, and I still remember that experience to this day about how the whole time thinking this is completely impossible. They are, there's no way they can actually achieve this. So these two role-playing games are more to the Lord of the Rings uh, side. So they have shadow points. Um, in, in the Adventures in Middle-Earth version, the shadow points are counted against your wisdom ability. So basically, you have your wisdom score, and you start off, I guess, with no shadow points. And when your shadow points exceed your wisdom score, then something bad happens to you. Uh, when, a shadow, when a hero's shadow points exceed their wisdom, they become subject to the miserable condition and are in danger of falling into madness for a time, which causes the worst aspects of the character, according to their shadow weakness, to come out. So it's basically, there's a mechanical thing that will make you be, do the Boromir thing of, of losing your mind and doing something bad. One of the things that you can do to get a shadow point is a misdeed. And... They have they define misdeeds pretty clearly, but you probably already know what a misdeed is, right? This is not a game this is a game that will mechanically punish you for being the kind of player that casts fireball in a village square just because you can. Now, you might think that's a pretty debaggy thing to do for a player, and you'd be right. But some players that's how they play and you know, if if you're not cool with it at your table, and I wouldn't be cool with it at my table, you need to you know set some ground rules and say that's not the kind of game that we're running. And if if that's what you need to do to have fun, you probably need to find another group, or you, the game master, need to find other players if they're all like that. But what I'm not so cool about is using game mechanics to force players to play a different way. I mean, I have to think that people who are attracted to playing a full-on Lord of the Rings or Tolkien-esque role-playing game would be into doing Tolkien and would want to behave the way Tolkien characters behave and therefore would not want to commit misdeeds. But loads of stereotypical shenanigans that a certain type of player gets up to are literally punishable 
by misdeeds. And here's the thing. So you, your shadow points outweigh your wisdom, then you fall into madness. And if you fall into madness four times, your character is done. It becomes a, an evil NPC under the control of the lore master. And you uh, have to start again, roll up a new character. So I have mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, it, yeah, it is a mechanical way of making a Tolkien-esque thing happen. But I also feel like it's using game mechanics to influence player behavior. And I feel like if there's bad behavior at the table, then you don't handle it in-game, you actually handle it out of the game. You know, you, you, you maybe before the game starts, everybody be clear about the style of play and what's acceptable and what isn't. And if, you know, some people have hard lines or like, this is the way I do it, then if, if it's really not going to work and the play styles aren't going to be compatible, then play a different game. But I, I don't, I'm not comfortable with kind of using game mechanics to affect player behavior. I mean, even, even in, in D and I'm very iffy about, you know, things like charm spells and dominate spells that where you, where you, uh, you force the players to do things that they don't, you're forced the characters to do things that their players don't want them to do. And even that it's usually temporary. So I'm a, I'm a little bit suspicious of that. I doubt it's going to come up because one of the advantages of playing with children is that they tend not to do those things children don't walk into a town and try to kill all the npcs because they they think that would be fun they children are much more care comfortable being the good guy and speaking of good guys one of the best things about especially adventures of middle earth i think they pointed out especially because it does it does have the 5e logo on it and advertise its compatibility with Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. There's no alignment. Basically, you're a good guy. If you're rolling up a character for this game, you're a good guy. How, whatever flavor of good guy and whatever subtleties and stuff, that's, that's your role-playing concern, but there's no... There's no nine-point alignment system, and you're not going to play a Servant of the Shadow. There's no playable orcs or trolls or ring wraiths or things like that. You know, the, the, point, the point of playing this game is you're a good guy, you're here to do good things, and that's it. I don't care if you're chaotic or lawful. What do those things even mean? You know, um, that's really refreshing because although I don't think we'll ever see a, an edition of Dungeons and Dragons that completely eschews alignment, alignment is a is a blessing and a curse. Um, there are so many things that go wrong with alignment. Um, so many, like I think, probably every group has their own interpretation of what alignment is even supposed to do. And have you ever tried to explain the different alignment system, like the different, uh, the different alignments, either on either the three point, five point, or nine point? You know what is what does neutral really mean? Like true neutral? Like are do you really think that everything needs to be kept in balance, or can you just not be bothered taking a side? And can't both of those be neutral? You know, so. The fact that we just we're just gonna ditch that whole thing. You're you're good guys. You can play your personality however you want, but you're on the good guy side. Whatever you do, you don't want the shadow to win. However, the next thing that I have concerns about, and this is from the One Ring. I haven't gone through the entire One Ring core rulebook yet. Um, quite a lot of it is repeated verbatim in Adventures in Middle-Earth, especially things about setting material and, and uh, the approach and stuff. And it has shadow points as well, although they're, they're calculated differently. Um, this is advice on running a campaign. And under campaign goals, what is the goal of the campaign? How is its development going to affect Middle-Earth and its history? The objective of a campaign traces the potential changes that the gameplay is likely to force upon the world, hinting at what is going to happen and what the players can do about it. So there's a few red flags that come up when I read something like that. And one of them 
right away, uh, again, Chuck Thorin had done a podcast about licensed RPGs and all licensed RPGs have one big flaw, which he pointed out. And that's that your players characters are not the main characters, you know, I think the way he put it, Luke Skywalker blows up the Death Star, not your characters. You know, Frodo is the one who takes the ring to Mordor, not your characters. And, you know, the great part about homebrewing your own setting or using a setting that only exists to host a game is that they they don't have these canonical characters who are the big movers and shakers. And that gives your your player's characters a chance to fill that role. And that's not really a possibility. In, in these sorts of games, which have a burden of canonical literature or canonical events um, behind them. So you, you, have to, you have to know that whatever great adventures you have during this game, they will not and in fact cannot affect the things that we know will happen afterwards. So <laughs> basically you're you're burdened with coming up with a campaign idea that will either play right into something we know is already going to happen or at the very least won't mess it up and i feel like that's putting a lot of red tape that's a lot more there's a lot more restriction than i normally like when you know i sit down to play uh, an rpg the other red flag is you know how is its development going to affect Middle Earth and its history? I, I, when I start any RPG, I don't assume that the player's actions are going to affect the game world and its history at all. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. It probably won't at first level. Um, and we'll just see what they do. It, it could be that the players have no interest in getting involved in the wider conflicts in the game world. That all they want to do is loot a few tombs and get some treasure. And I don't see why you can't just do that in this game. I don't see why you need to proceed or need to assume that you're doing something almost as epic as Lord of the Rings. And that's that's where I feel like the, the focus... Again, it's anti-Hobbit. It's not just anti-Hobbit the creatures, but it's anti-Hobbit the book. I would be far more interested in running a Tolkien-esque game that is more like The Hobbit. That is some good adventure in a compelling fantasy world. Fun, exciting, not world-shaping. And this assumes that you're going to be playing an epic lord of the rings-esque campaign i don't want to run that campaign so i mean the 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 upshot is i'm not going to i'm going to try to run much a much more hobbit style campaign um when we when we actually do start doing this my son's already rolled up his hobbit character um we need to uh get my daughter's character running and then um i need to actually make some notes for what's going to happen to them in the shire and you know their first couple of adventures as they leave the Shire and search for for something interesting to happen. But I mean, they're pretty clear that that's what they want. They just want to they want to go out on an adventure like Bilbo did, with no particular goal in mind or nothing nothing really. Like I said, world shaping. And my daughter is currently reading Lord of the Rings, so she's getting a dose of the other style, the more epic style. But. I just that's not that's not what I bring to the table. Like I I don't I don't sit around and think let's come up with a story that will change the world as we know it, you know. Some people that's that's what they want to do. That's awesome, you know. But I feel like that's a lot of pressure. And I feel like it's more fun to to take a, a lighter approach and say, you know, and Maybe as you level up and maybe you'll get involved into something and and eventually work up to that epic style. But at the early stages, you know, just like, let's just see what, you know, what's beyond the borders of the Shire. Where is there a potential for some adventure? So anyways, um, that is something that I'll be hoping to get off the ground um, pretty soon. And I'll probably let you know how it's going. 
Um, I would definitely though get the get that humble bundle if it's still available. Um, because if you if you've ever wanted to run a game in Middle Earth for any reason, even if you don't use that system, um, there's loads of setting information, and uh, I mean, yeah, you can basically get the entire thing in PDF, the entirety of the One Ring and all the supplements and maps and stuff in PDF forms for less than you could buy the core rulebook under normal circumstances. And um, I don't know which system I like better. If I were going to say just stick with that one or or go ahead and invest in Adventures in Middle Earth. I suspect that that the overall tone they're going for does fit better with the One Ring system. Because there's not a lot of leveling up. You level up at a much different rate and a slower rate in the One Ring, it looks like, from... from uh, what the core rule book says about experience points and advancement points. Um, it's, it's more like gradually growing in experience than, you know, the kind of progression up to level 20 that, you know, D and D kind of, you know, where you, where you end up getting really, really powerful. Um, and so that's what I am working on this week. Um, well, well, that's not the only thing I'm uh, I'm working on this week. I am also working on a one-page dungeon. Um, some of you may have no- may be aware of this, but uh, talking of James Bond, he is crowdsourcing uh, short dungeon crawls to be published in a compilation for his Untold Adventures system, and I signed up to do one of them. Basically. You go to the Google Plus community for Untold Adventures. Um, there's a pinned post there which describes what you have to do. You get one of the free Dyson Logos maps. Um, make sure you look at all the other ones that have been claimed so you don't claim one that somebody else has already done because, you know, one map per <laughs> one map per designer. Stock it with monsters um, from the uh, Untold Adventures Deluxe and uh, send it to him by November 1st with, you know, the key in the, the description and the adventure hook. Maximum 3,000 words. And he will publish it in a compilation. Uh, it's free. So nobody's making any money off of this, including him. But you will get author credit. And I have been, I've been trying to finish a dungeon or something to publish on uh, one bookshelf for two years. Um, and this kind of short, tight, focused project is um, is probably just what I need. So I I am up to what, area fourteen, and. I think so. What, uh, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. So I'm over halfway through um, keying this dungeon up, at least as a rough draft. Um, and it doesn't have to be done until the 1st of November. So that is going really well. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's really good. It's, it's actually a really good way to get to know Untold Adventures and how it's distinct from White Box. There are there are currently 15 submissions. There were 16, but one person at least has pulled out. And uh, James Spawn has said that he's going to cap it at 20. So as I'm speaking now, there are presumably still room for five more contributors. So if you're interested in pulling out, like pulling a, a free map from Dyson Logo's uh, blog, and keying it up as a as an untold adventures dungeon crawl. Um, I would definitely advise you to do that. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, and that, is, oh yeah, the other thing that that is happening is um, I have a I offered to run Swords and Wizardry White Box for some people on my local gaming forum. So, you know, grownups, I actually made the offer several months ago, but I have finally got 
seven interested players. So that's going to be happening next month. Um, I basic, I just wanted to say, you know, I, I noticed that on that forum, there's a lot of talk about, you know, 5e, a lot of talk about Pathfinder. There had been a group playing, like doing all the, uh, the old first edition modules. I think they'd gone through the A series on up and they were doing them all in order, but I think they're finished and I don't think, I don't think they've, they're active anymore. So it's like, wow, there's nobody on this forum doing any kind of old school D and D. I thought, why don't I just say, hey, if anybody wants to run, if anybody wants to play original D and D, I'll run it for you, just so you can see what it's like. And for a while, nobody, nobody responded, and I thought, well, at least I don't have to do anything. And now I have to do this, so I'm really, really nervous about it. The last time I tried to run an RPG for grown-ups, it did not end well. Um, I. I'm worried that they won't like it. They won't like the system. They won't like my the, the play style or my DMing style. I'm even more worried that they will like it and I'll have to do it regularly. Although I suppose if that happened, I would eventually get used to it. Um, I have decided that I'm going to run one of Josh Beckelheimer's one-page adventures because those, you know, I don't have a great history of doing one-shots and I feel like this one, I'm going to do Tower of Skulls looks like it's going to work really well as a one shot it's just a brief dungeon crawl down a tower it's got a unique monster and a unique magic item that i think will really capture people's imagination we can finish it in one shot therefore if they decide this game isn't for me at least we don't feel like oh we never even finished that adventure it's like it's a good stopping point you know and then we can decide if they do want to keep playing where we go from there but that's the other thing that's happening. Um, and I am, I'm actually losing, it's not even going to be until the 12th of September and I'm already losing sleep about it because I'm so anxious about having to run for grownups that I've never met before. And I think also because the last time I tried to run an RPG for grownups that I never met before it did not work out. So I'm worried that I, that's going to happen. Anyways, I'll I'll keep you posted on that as well, even though it's off topic because it's not with kids. Um, until then, play well and let the dice roll where they may. Fall where they may. I can't remember my own sign-off. <laughs>